We are going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians. We are in a new series called How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. Last week we covered verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, it is imperative that you get that message. It's foundational for your understanding of not only our study of the book of Galatians, but what we're trying to communicate through this series. So you can get that at the information table today. You can get that at our website. You can get that on iTunes. Lots of ways to get that. But if you weren't here last week and you're going to continue in the study of the book of Galatians with us, you want to make sure that you get that. Today we're going to work our way through the text. We're going to cover a lot of verses. We're going to cover verse 10, or starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2. So a lot of ground that we'll cover. And I've got to tell you that if there is any sort of tedious ground in Galatians, this is it. This, this big chunk that we're covering. I, I don't want to say that anything in Galatians is tedious. But if there were something that's a little bit tedious in Galatians, it's this passage, just by the nature of what Paul's trying to do here. So that's my disclaimer. If the sermon stinks, I told you so beforehand. And if it's good, then it's just a bonus. Let's pray that it's good. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in our lives. We thank you for this fresh season where you are teaching us more about the gospel, the daily implications of your love for us and what you've done for us on the cross. We ask that today you would continue that work, that you would give us insight, discernment, wisdom, and knowledge, that you would speak to us clearly, profoundly, in a way that would be transformative in our lives. Thank you that you freed us from having to perform and from trying to do better and be better and that you, Christ, through the cross, have brought us into a place of rest and just being accepted before God. We ask that that would be real and true today. We ask together that you would please help me to communicate these truths, that every word that comes from these lips would be from your throne and that it would be clear and unfettered and used for your glory. Give us understanding now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, earlier this week, I was spending some time with a friend, uh, one of my best friends in the whole world. We hadn't hung out too much lately, and we needed to catch up. I was feeling a little disconnected, and so we got together, and we were hanging out in a jacuzzi, and uh, we had our daughters with us. Our daughters are about the same ages, and, and we were just playing in the jacuzzi and in the pool, and we were sitting there just talking about life and stuff going on, and He was aware that someone very close to me had recently hurt me pretty deeply with uh, some things they said and did, and and he was aware of what had gone on there. And so he was just following up, and he asked me, hey, how's it it going with so-and-so? And And I was kind of like, you know, kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, whatever. I mean, you know, just kind of blew it off. And I'm talking to him, but just whatever. And and he, he looked at me right in the eyes, and he said, you know, you really do hold grudges. And, you know, I just kind of paused for a minute, hoping to defend myself, but didn't think I could. And and then he proceeded to highlight a couple other times in relationships in my life where he's seen me hold grudges recently. And he pointed those out to me, and I, I realized I'm like that. I have this tendency to hold grudges, to want to punish people, to remember the ways that they failed me or hurt me. I'm probably not alone in that. I think some of us are like that, maybe from time to time. And 
It's made me think this week how thankful I am that God is nothing like that. That because of the gospel, it is theologically impossible for God to hold grudges against us. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, God cannot and will not hold things over our heads, hold grudges against us, or keep us in a place of punishment and pain over and over again for the failures in our lives. His mercies are new every morning. And the gospel is that though we have done very poorly, God has done so wonderfully in what Christ did on the cross for us. And now we are holy, totally, forever, once and for all, forgiven, accepted, adored, and we stand before God in grace. Now the issue that we're discussing is that the Christian life is lived out in daily and deeply thinking upon that gospel and that grace, and in daily applying that grace and that gospel to situations, relationships, and ourselves. That is how the Christian life is to be lived. Realizing daily that the gospel is not good advice to people, but it is good news about Jesus. It's not an invitation to do something, but it is a declaration of what God has already done for us. And this is the issue in the book of Galatians. And the issue in the topic surfaces because there were those present in the church in Galatia at this time who were saying otherwise. There were those who were saying, in effect, the gospel is good and it is how you begin the Christian life. But if you're going to mature as a Christian, you need to start a careful keeping of the rules in order to keep a favored place before God. There were those in the church in Galatia that were beginning to say that. And so Paul is writing this letter in order to combat that idea, in order to defend the truth of the gospel as the only way to live. He wants to defend the idea that We were first accepted by God, not because we were good or did good things. Rather, the opposite is true. Rather, we were accepted by God because of the thing that Jesus did for us. And we now continue with God, not because we have become good or we're doing better or we're doing good things, but rather because of Christ's once and for all finished work that accomplishes our continued acceptance before God in grace once and for all. The idea that we need to or somehow possibly ever could become good Christians is simply not true. What would constitute a good Christian anyway? There there would have to be some sort of discernible scale in Christian. In in scripture, excuse me. (laughs) There'd have to be some discernible scale in scripture, some continuum from good Christian to bad Christian where we could locate ourselves and others. And it just isn't there in scripture. But the context of the book of Galatians is that there were those who thought they had found the way to be a good Christian. And in this context, it was keeping the Mosaic law and being circumcised as a sort of a sign and a promise of the keeping of the law to continue 
in Christianity and to become a good Christian, you had to progress in those certain things, they would say. You had to progress in those certain things and ways. Now, that idea of progression is somewhat appealing to all of us, though, in a different way maybe than the Mosaic Law and circumcision. We, we sort of naturally think this way. Progression and achievement, always needing to go a bit further and do a bit better to get there, are common themes for us. They're, they're common themes in our society. One doctor and author says this, the entire process of self-development can be very exciting and entertaining. But the problem is, there's no end to it. The fantasy is that if one heads in the right direction and just works hard enough to learn new things and grows enough and gets actualized, one will be there. None of us is quite certain exactly where there is, but it obviously has something to do with resting. It obviously has something to do with resting. And we all get that. We all sort of think that we need to do better to get to this place where we're going to finally feel okay. But what the gospel tells us, and this is why the gospel is good news, is that there has already been provided a way that we can rest now. It makes it clear that because of what Christ has done for us, we have arrived by grace. There's no further place to go. We don't need to try any harder. It's all been done for us and we can rest and be free from that pressure now. And this is the idea that Paul is defending as he writes to the Galatians. And in an attempt to combat this message of extravagant grace, there were his opponents there who were attacking him. And the way that they attacked Paul was by casting aspersion on both his apostleship and his message. And in the verses we're looking at today, Paul is defending both of those. Now concerning his apostleship, in the Jewish mindset of the day, apostle was, an apostle was a special messenger with a special status enjoying an authority and a commission that came from a body higher than himself. Okay, so this culture, and especially the Jewish culture, understood what an apostle was. Someone who was commissioned and authorized to go and take a message somewhere. In Christian understanding, it came to be used as a technical term to refer to the 12 that Jesus himself appointed to teach and to preach in his name. Plus then, it came to include, in the New Testament, a couple of other people, Paul being one of them. It was a small group of unique people, apostle with a capital A. There are those who are apostles today, but it's not with a capital A. It has more to do with an anointing to pioneer works and plant churches, so on and so forth. But this is a unique thing in the New Testament, very limited in number. Now, Paul's opponents' accusations would have been that Paul received his apostleship and his message secondhand. But there was sort of an apostolic succession that someone said to Paul, okay, you can be an apostle too, and here's the message we want you to take, presumably the original apostles. 
And then the opponent seemed to be saying, and we deduce all of this just by reading the text, the opponent seemed to then be saying that Paul had gotten the message slightly obscured, slightly muddy, that he had gotten it skewed a bit. He had heard one thing from the original apostles, but now he kind of got it off a little bit. And so his opponents there in the church in Galatia were supposedly setting the message right and claiming to have a greater authority to do so. And what we see in this letter is that Paul trumps all of them by saying, I am straight from Jesus, baby, and the message I have is straight from Jesus. We saw that when we read verse 1 last week. We'll read it again, Galatians 1.1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ. Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul here in his defense of the gospel message and his apostleship claims that the higher body that authorized him is Christ himself and the Father. This is paramount in Paul's argument. He's saying, I I didn't get any of this, this calling or this message secondhand. And therefore, it's not some game of telephone where the message has gotten confused somewhat. Now he goes on in today's text to tell us how he got that message and to reinforce its origins. We'll start in verse 11. We'll get back to verse 10 in a minute. Verse 11, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul here is asserting that he got the message directly from Jesus. This is important for us to know. The gospel that we believe and bank our lives on is not some humanly devised thing. Remember, that would be religion. Religion is humanity's attempt to get with God, be right with God. The gospel is what God has done. And no human source made it up. Think about it. If the gospel were based on human reasoning, it would have made a way for humans to look much better in the storyline. Right? When, when we tell stories, we want to at some point look good in that story. When we write stories, we write ourselves in as a hero. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus. But, but if, if the gospel was human reasoning, we would have looked way better. But you see, a core component of the gospel is that we're really, really bad. That's, that's the story. The true gospel then pulls the rug out from underneath us. It tells us that there are none who are good before God. Secondly, if the gospel were based on human reasoning, it would have made a way for there to be greater and lesser Christians, right? Because we always create division based on merit and demerit within society. That's how society functions, It's all based on performance, merit and demerit. We we do this with fashion. We do this with finance. 
We do this with sports, with career. In society, we create all of these various divisions, greater and lesser, the haves and the have-nots, according to merit and demerit. And if we made up the gospel, we would have made a way for there to be super Christians and ghetto Christians. But the gospel pulls the rug out from underneath us because it says that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And again, if the gospel were based on mere human reasoning, we would have created a God that deals more directly and less mercifully with badness. Now, there's a caveat here. If we were just making our own personal God, then he would always be merciful and he would always turn a blind eye to sin. But the moment we would think of others and a God that we would invent for them and a God that we would invent for the most wicked in society, we would invent a God and a message that is always and immediately radically harsh with badness. But the true gospel pulls the rug out from underneath us here again. Because the God of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is his story and our story, is the only God man has ever heard of who is so fiercely and relentlessly in love with sinners. God has a singular stance toward humanity. He loves us. You see, false gods, the kind that people invent, despise sinners. But the gospel is good news for everyone. The gospel is good news for everyone in society, no matter how seemingly wicked. In the classic book, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky captured this crazy scandalous idea of grace this way. He said this, quote, At the last judgment... Christ will say to us, come you also, come drunkards, come weaklings, come children of shame. And he will say to us, vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast and bear his mark, but come all the same you as well. And the wise and the prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, if I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his arms and we will fall at his feet and we will cry out sobbing and then we will understand all. We will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. You see, if the gospel were based on mere human reasoning, it would be way more complicated than merely trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done. If the gospel were humanly contrived, we would do away with deathbed conversions. Because we're not okay with someone who does bad their whole life and at the last moment gets off. If the gospel were humanly devised, we would do away with pardon for the worst in society. The Stalins and the Hitlers. We, we would never make a way for them. We would demand a sort of justice other than the justice that is met at the cross. At least we would do so for everyone other than ourselves. 
You see, when you look at the gospel, it's clear, as Paul claimed, that there is no way that this gospel is human reasoning. Because a true gospel just seems too easy. And that was one of the accusations that the opponents were making toward Paul, that Paul was trying to make the gospel message more palatable to people. They were saying that's where he had gotten off from the message that he must have gotten from the original apostles. It seems that they thought that Paul's failure to force the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses was just a ploy to please them. Now, certainly it would please them because what adult male wants to be circumcised? And who wants to keep the law? And we can understand why they may have accused Paul of this because we do this all the time. In an effort to be more liked, we are very quick to compromise on hard truth. We do this all the time. And that's what they were accusing Paul of. But Paul is making it clear that he doesn't operate that way. Verse 10, he says, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. He says, my, my message isn't about making people feel better about themselves. It's not about trying to make it easier for people. This is the truth that has come from God. No man could think this up. The fact that he's not trying to please people is evident in verses 8 and 9, again from last week, when he says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of gospel than the one we preach to you. I say again that we have said before, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. And then he says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people. I just curse them all. You see, Paul knows that the only truth and the only power that ever changes people is the power of God working through the gospel. And Paul's story is that he had been radically changed. Now we pick it up in verse 13. He says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. So Paul was a persecutor. And he was excellent when it came to religion. He he says, I was pretty much better than everybody else my age when it came to being a religious Jew. Paul was this paradox. He was an extremely committed, moral, religious murderer. He was a paradox. But Paul was radically transformed. And his argument here is that no man-made message does that. No man-made message has the power to do that. And his argument throughout Galatians is that the law does not have the power to change us in such a way. Especially a message that was merely a twist on what he was already doing. That, that never would have changed him. If the gospel was merely, okay, you're a Christian, now perform well and do well and keep the rules, Paul was already doing that. And he said, I was doing that better than anybody else. 
What we see in Galatians is that the gospel is absurd if it only means that the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ were in order to make us better, to make us more moral, more well-behaved people, then the gospel is absurd. The cross and the resurrection, the suffering, maiming, and victory of Christ were not to make us better behaved. It was to make us brand new. And there is a tremendous difference between acting better and having been changed. And Paul is saying, I've been changed. I was a religious murderer. Now I'm a lover who's been set free to enjoy God. Paul was a brand new person. And what Paul experienced in that transformation was radical grace. And he knew this. He knew it was radical. You see, when, when Paul encountered Jesus, when, when Jesus appeared to him, Paul was on the road to Damascus. He, he was on his way to violently persecute Christians. He, he was going to physically harm Christians. Paul was there. He was a party to the stoning of Stephen when Stephen was murdered for his Christianity. Paul was on his way in his religious zeal to do that sort of violence to Christians in Damascus. And Jesus encountered him on his way there on the road. And and, and Jesus took these actions of Paul against the church personally. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to Paul, whose name was then Saul, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So the Lord of the universe, Christ, saw Paul as a violent aggressor against him. And here is grace. That the Lord, who Paul was violently opposed to and whose mission he sought to destroy, comes to him, meets him, saves him, transforms him, and forever showers his love upon him. Here is grace. This is grace. When everything in us and our actions would say that we deserve bad and punishment and alienation, and yet we are treated with goodness, kindness, and favor and brought into a loving relationship with God, that is grace. Paul was radically opposed, violently opposed to Jesus. And Jesus comes and in love changes him. This is just the polar opposite of what religion does. There is just an incapacity for the keeping of the rules to ever affect this kind of change in humanity. Paul had already mastered good performance as much as possible. And what Paul knew in his experience was that that sort of life of endeavoring to progress and be better and do better is folly. And you know that. Not only does scripture tell us that, but our experience tells us that our efforts to be better are unsustainable we eventually find ourselves worn out and disillusioned by our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, and our thrashing about to try to fix ourselves. 
Here's what Brennan Manning says about it. Listen to this very carefully. This is really good. He says, We believe that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But sooner or later, we're confronted with the painful truth of our inadequacy and insufficiency. Our security is shattered and our bootstraps are cut. Once the fervor has passed, weakness and infidelity appear. We discover our inability to add even a single inch to our spiritual stature. There begins then a long winter of discontent that eventually flowers into gloom, pessimism, and a subtle despair. Subtle because it goes unrecognized, unnoticed, and therefore unchallenged. It takes the form of boredom, drudgery. We are overcome by the ordinariness of life, by daily duties done over and over and over again. We secretly admit that the call of Jesus is too demanding, that surrender to the Holy Spirit is beyond our reach. We start acting like everyone else. And life takes on a joyless, empty quality. This is some of your stories. This is a story, this is the predicament of every Christian who tries to continue in self-effort and self-improvement instead of gospel transformation. Life takes on a joyless, empty quality. But you see, Paul's life wasn't like that. Paul's life was one of amazement. Paul was continually thrilled. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I'll read it to you. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I, was a, I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. You see, Paul in his life was amazed There's no sense of joylessness. There's no sense of being empty or bored. He was amazed, thrilled, captivated, charmed, and entranced by the gospel. And so Paul saw all of life and his place in life as a gift. We see this in verse 15. He says, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. And then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. You see, that is what grace does. It proclaims the awesome truth that all is a gift from God. Because again, the gospel is not good advice to us but it is good news about Jesus. It is not an invitation for us to try to do better. It is a declaration 
of what Christ has already done. And what happens in the church when we begin to live gospel-shaped lives is that we see this truth in each other and it causes us to rejoice. When we see this, when we see this sort of transformation, we know this to be true. You see, Paul knew that this was truth from God. He didn't get it secondhand, that it wasn't a distortion of the message. We see that as we continue reading in verse 16. He says, when this happened, I didn't rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I'm writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Galicia, uh, or Cilicia, excuse me. And still the Christians in the churches in Judea did not know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Paul says, I, man, I didn't, I didn't get this message secondhand. I'm not acting on behalf of these other apostles. I don't have this thing confused through a game of telephone. I saw Jesus. I was on my way to murder, and he loved me. I was a moral murderer, opposed to Christ, and he loved me, and he saved me, and I know this to be truth. And people are seeing and praising God because of me. You see, this is what the world needs to see. The world is not overly impressed with our rule keeping. There are people who are not Christians, who are far better Christians than I am. If you want to measure it that way. If you want to measure it from morality and performance and rule keeping and ethics. I know non-Christians that are better Christians than me. But if we want to measure it, according to having experienced God's love and life transformation that exudes that we are captivated, charmed, and entranced with who God is. That even in our worst failures, we experience profound grace and freedom. That, that's that's going to make the world rejoice. That's the message that the world needs to see. Paul goes on further to defend this gospel that he preaches in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me. And did not even demand that my companion, Titus, be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So Paul, at this junction, several years later, goes to Jerusalem, hangs out with the disciples, and he confirms, look, here's the message I'm preaching, that we're truly free from the burden of the law, right? That our standing before God, the favor that he has upon us daily, is strictly according to what Christ has done, not anything that we could do, right? Right? And the original apostles who were with Jesus, who knew him best, said, 
right. That is the message. It is solely dependent upon what Christ has done, both for salvation and for life as a Christian. And that was evidenced by the fact that the original 12 did not demand that Titus, a Gentile with them, be circumcised at that time. Paul's opponents, though, are saying that they've got some sort of authority from the 12 and that all the Gentiles ought to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, sorry, dude, I was there. I was with those guys. That's just not the way that it went down. They confirmed this message that is free from performance. Verses 4 and 5 Even that question, the question of circumcision, came up only because of some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. You see, it would have been compromise to go back into the slavery of needing to perform and keep the rules to feel as though you're okay with God. Paul said that his goal was to preserve and be faithful to the gospel of grace. To be faithful to the gospel of grace is to realize that when we disobey The gospel brings us comfort by reminding us that God's approval doesn't depend on our obedience, but on Christ's obedience. God's approval doesn't depend on our obedience. It is solely based on Christ's obedience. So when you are bad, anyone here ever bad? Only me. When I am bad... Because of this true gospel that is from God and not made up by people, I know that God's approval for me is still there because it doesn't have to do with my obedience but with Christ's obedience. And because Christ did so good on the cross and I am now in Christ by my faith in Him, God is fully and completely and wholly and totally pleased with me today. And after knowing this truth, if we then fall into performance and put performance on other people like some of you are doing, we do this in the church. We're so cruel with people when they fail. We set ourselves up as a standard of holiness and demand that everybody do better. When we do this to ourselves and and to others, we are denying the love of God. We're denying the truth of the gospel. And it's heinous. That's why Paul said in last week's text, chapter 1, verse 6, he said, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. One author says about this, if we, okay, the church, continue to picture God as a small-minded bookkeeper, a niggling customs officer rifling through our moral suitcase, as a policeman with a club who's going to bat us over the head every time we stumble and fall, or as a whimsical, capricious, cantankerous thief who delights in raining on our parade and stealing our joy, then we flatly deny what John writes in his first letter, that God is love. 
to measure ourselves and to imagine how God feels about us daily according to our performance is to flatly deny the declaration that God is love and the truth of the gospel. To do it to others is a sort of wickedness. Paul finishes in verse 6. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. He says, by the way, the reputation of great leaders made no difference to me. God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Paul says, the message I was preaching is consistent with the message of the original 12 Gospels. So he's defanging his opponent's claims here. He says they had nothing to add to the message. I mean, just think for a minute. Could we ever imagine that Peter was going to somehow add to the gospel message? That, that, that Peter was ever going to say, oh yes, it's good to be saved by the gospel, that it's totally what Jesus has done, nothing that you've done, but now that you're saved, you need to start to perform well and keep the rules. Peter, who denied Jesus three times? Peter, who called a curse upon himself in effect, saying, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying, I don't know Jesus? Are we to think that Peter, who denied Jesus and 43 days later was the primary leader of the church preaching the gospel when 3,000 got saved? Are we to think that Peter would ever say, oh yeah, you need to perform well and behave right and keep the rules and be accepted by God? No! Peter was horrible! Peter stood in front of Jesus and said, I swear I don't know who he is. Forty days later, he was the primary representative of Jesus. This is grace. And Peter and Paul had been changed by it. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. If you are feeling defeated, overwhelmed, Like a failure today, the arms of Jesus are open to you. He went to the cross and stretched his arms out and was nailed there because we're so bad. But he is so good. And his forgiveness is limitless. Come to him today. God, we thank you for this truth. God, I thank you for this truth that has changed my life. God, we pray together that if anybody is here in the Carpinteria campus or the Ventura campus that does not know your grace, we ask that you'd open up their eyes and their hearts today that they would call upon you for forgiveness. They would recognize they're really bad, but what you did was really good. And that you would, in that moment, flood their lives with grace. That you would wash, cleanse, and renew them, God. 
You'd make them brand new creations. You would give them the hope of a brand new life. That they would daily experience your favor, your approval, your love, and your presence because of the gospel. God, do that for us all. Prayer team is here. Carpets are here. And come and get on your face before this beautiful God who loves us so much. And communion is here.